Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Cotton Story, sponsored by E3 Sustainable Cotton. I'm Jennifer Crumpler, Fiber Development Manager and Manager of the E3 Sustainable Cotton Program from BASF and host of today's program. So today I'm hosting a very special program and one that I'm very excited about, and I'm really excited to kind of get into the meat and potatoes of the program with our guest. Um, you know, we're going to do a special program today to discuss some of the many recent developments in the world economy, international trade, um, and of course, how that, Im that impact that, um, you know, COVID, but just overall 2020 had on the global business for cotton, textiles, and apparel. So really just, you know, one of the great, ep this episode, I hope everyone will just really find interesting um, for those that we have on the show today. So I'm joined today by my great friend, Bob Anishak, industry consultant. And, you know, Bob, I know you and I have talked and, and like you said, you and I had a lot of fun putting together, you know, some of the questions and getting all the guests ready for the show today. So how are things going with you? Things are going great. And I also look forward to the program as well, Jennifer. This is going to be really a lot of fun. So, and besides that, it's 70 degrees out, so I can't complain. <laughs> well, you know, I think this is the first time, Bob, we've done the podcast that it's not been snowing. Where you're at, exactly. so I'm really yeah, we're, excited. We're, Look, we're already totally off to a good agree. start. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally great. Awesome. So. <laughs> well, you know, and I think our listeners have kind of traveled with me and went with me on our um, on my journey through COVID and working virtually. And you know, I normally like like our listeners know. I'll just let everyone know. So today we just hit the Great Exumas in the Bahamas. So really excited and still beautiful weather, beautiful people and. You know, at the end of the day, great drinks. So really excited about um, how everything's going and, you know, how BASF has supported me living sustainably and really just working virtually through it. So everything's going good over here. But, um, you know, I'm really happy to introduce today's guest. So I'm really excited. We have three leaders in the global textile and apparel industry. So Julia Hughes is president of U.S. Fashion Industry Council. Kim Glass, the president and CEO of the National Council of Textile Organizations. And then one of our returning guests and good friends, textile industry consultant, Augie Tantilla. So Augie, um, Julia, Kim, welcome to you guys. And thanks so much for being here today. Thank you. Thanks. Great to be here. Thank you. Awesome. So I'm sure, um, you know, some of our listeners are going to know and have known you guys for a while because you've had such successful, impactful careers and accomplished careers in textile and apparel industries and in government policy. Um, you know, and especially these days, you guys are on the front lines of international trade. Government policies are all affecting global sourcing from textile and apparels from around the world. You know, we kind of were laughing earlier, even Augie's come out of retirement a little bit. So I don't think you ever really get it out of your blood, um, you know, once you're kind of there and in the um, thick and thin of it. So before we really go into what's happening, the world of international trade, government actions and what's going on, I'd love to see if you guys would always talk a bit about your background so our listeners can learn more about you. So um, Julia, let's, let's start with you, if you don't mind. No, that's on that's great. Thanks. Uh, and I'm going to go like a little bit way, way back here uh, because, you know, what really got, I was really interested in international issues and that's why I ended up in Washington, DC. Actually, I went to college here to Georgetown and then I stayed in DC uh, and actually my first job was with an association. Uh, and at that time, 
I, you know, I didn't really like lobbying very much. So I went back to grad school for a degree in international economics uh, <laughs> uh, to kind of turn away from that to the economic side. And I was really lucky because then when I left grad school, I got a terrific job with a company that was an international sourcing organization. So I had the chance to uh, travel to offices overseas, um, to help explain what's happening in Washington, to be an advocate for that company, um, to work with people like Augie, actually. Uh, and then, you know, which really led my career path to today where I'm doing the same thing on behalf of the industry. So I, I kind of actually ha had a path and ended up doing what I had hoped I would be doing from the start. That's exciting. And, you know, it's one of those um, when you kind of find your path and when you find where you're excited and you're passionate about it, that's a great when all those roads and everything comes together. So, um, Kim, what about you? Sure. Um, well, similar to Julie, uh, I came to Washington after college and, you know, I and my father, um, we had a conversation about me becoming a social studies teacher, which is what I was certified to do. And I'm clearly failing at that miserably because um, <laughs> I am now running a trade association and I'm wondering what happened to that path. But but that being said, I was sort of uh, bitten by the Washington bug and really felt like I wanted to dedicate my career to serving in the government and worked for two members of Congress on the Hill from hard hit. Uh, in, uh, in places in our economy where manufacturing job loss was pretty rampant in northern Maine and Buffalo, New York. And then I was tapped to serve as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Textiles and Apparel under the Obama administration and was really pleased to work with both Julie and Augie in that role um, between the importing community and the domestic manufacturing industries and uh, ran a sustainability nonprofit um, right after that and came to serve as the president and CEO of the National Council of Textile Organizations about two years ago. And we represent the domestic textile industry here in the United States. Well, that's exciting. Well, I really am starting to feel like I'm in the cool kids club because it seems like Julia and Kim, all of you guys have all worked with Augie and, you know, Augie and Bob. So I really feel like I'm among legends now. <laughs> so Augie, um, you know, what? Let, let's, you know, a little bit about your, your background um, for our listeners. Uh, well, thanks, Jennifer. In actuality, my uh, career tracks very closely with uh, the previous two guests. I been in Washington or Washington-related work for 40 years now. Uh, thought that I would come to Washington for two years and and uh, go back to uh, uh, a place that was a little bit uh, less in, insane. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I got the addiction and stayed uh, for uh, almost the entirety of my career working on policy matters related to trade. Uh, related to the textile industry. Like Kim, I started out on Capitol Hill. I uh, was there for six years. Uh, actually held the same position at Commerce that Kim mentioned, um, but uh, about, a, I don't know, f 15 years before Kim did. Uh, so I was at the uh, Commerce Department under the Herbert Walker Bush administration. Um, from there, I um, got into consulting, uh, working mainly for domestic textile manufacturers, did that for the better part of 20 years, 
and then eventually found my way into association work, um, ending up uh, uh, doing some work at the National Council of Textile Organizations also, and now have cycled back out of that to uh, consulting arrangements. Uh, thank you, three, for joining us, really. Uh, I could only handle myself uh, <laughs> for about 12 years, I think it was. But um, anyway, it's really uh, great to have all three of you uh, joining Jennifer and me today. Uh, so thank you. Um, COVID, as we know, has had a pretty big impact on our business. So, you know, there's not much question about that. About that. But uh, one of the questions that uh, we'd like to ask is, uh, how do you feel? Uh, uh, do you feel international trade is unbalanced, a positive or negative force in the world? And can you outline some key factors in domestic trade policy that are affecting the cotton industry? Augie, maybe start with you. Okay, uh, sure. Um, you know, I think everyone on this call would agree that international trade is on balance uh, a uh, positive thing. Uh, it has uh, it has enormous benefits uh, economically, socially, so forth and so on. Um, but I do think uh, that it is uh, something uh, where you do have to take a probably a more balanced approach than what we have in the United States over the last 40 years. In other words, it's not all positive. Uh, there are negatives. Sometimes those negatives have been uh, overlooked, uh, including the impact on uh, the manufacturing uh, sector in the United States. Uh, it's uh, virtually impossible to compete uh, with uh, manufacturers in regions and countries that do not uh, abide by at least reasonable environmental uh, safety uh, and labor standards. Uh, and on top of that, um, in some cases receive uh, benefits that, uh, that are either unethical or unfair and, and potentially illegal, uh, such as subsidies or, or forced labor activity. Um, so while we all would agree that it's a positive, in my view, uh, I think the policymakers over the last 40 years have done a, a bit of a disservice to the U.S. economy, U.S. workforce, by assuming that it was only a positive and that there didn't need to be some level of mitigating factors to ensure um, that our economy and our workforce and our way of, of doing things was, was sustainable. Julie, what do you think? As usual, uh, <laughs> Ivy and I are going to take different perspectives here. <laughs> well, no, well, no, I mean, let me say, you know, I think if we're we're talking about the impact of trade, I think on balance it's a positive, and and I I don't dispute though that you know it it isn't going to you know a race to the bottom or the lowest common denominator in trade. I mean I would argue that actually 
you know, what we have seen in this sector in particular on the apparel side ha has really been a force for good around the world and has helped to bring development to countries where they didn't have jobs um, in developing countries and especially helped women in those countries have jobs in a way that has had a real economic benefit uh, around the globe. On, on the other hand, I think here, here at home, uh, you know, sometimes I think there, there may be a, a knee-jerk reaction to protectionism to be the right way to find a solution. And, and, you know, but what I think we really should be talking about, and there isn't enough of that here in DC is, you know, how can we help workers directly? How can we make sure that people are trained for the jobs that are the jobs of the future? Most Americans don't want to sit at a sewing machine anymore. They're looking for something else. And with technology today, uh, I think there's a lot of opportunities here. So I think you know, we come at the question from very different perspectives, but I think at we're not that far apart when we're thinking about what the solutions are, which is, you know, everyone wants to have fairness in trade and opportunities for consumers and for workers. Uh, so in that sense, we kind of come back around to be closer to each other in, in what the, the future, successful future is going to be for the U.S. and for cotton. And Kim, how about you? You know, um, listening to the comments, I, I agree with portions of both of what Julie and Augie said. I mean, I, I think this is a ripe conversation to have today. Um, in fact, uh, there's a Senate Finance Committee hearing that was uh, just a couple hours ago where senators are trying to think about the fragility of certain critical supply chains and how to onshore those supply chains to key communities across the country, including the industrial Midwest and North states like North Carolina. I think one thing that really um, crystallized in a lot of Americans' minds this year was the nonstop headlines and um, nightly news uh, that showed our nurses and men and women on the front lines not having the PPE that they needed and essentially wearing garbage bags. And so uh, while international trade is a very, very important tool, um, are there certain segments that need to come back and be reshored here in the United States so we have some capability to provide our workers with the essential products that they need? And this is a ripe conversation to have right now because President Biden has indicated uh, one of his top priorities is to help onshore critical supply chains and to recalibrate some of our trade relationships to ensure that those trade packs have strong labor and environmental standards moving forward and how to address the larger issues associated with China and trade enforcement. So, and I think, you know, for me, I always find the topic of trade policy being interesting. Um, and I come at it from a different standpoint than some of you guys. Um, I agree with some of all three of you, what you've said. Um, but, you know, looking at coming from a small town, southeastern, you know, North Carolina, we had three textile mills in our town. My whole town was supported by textile, you know, textile until they all left. Um, and, and so, you know, I understand, you know, you know, Kim and I understand Joy as far as, hey, how do we help workers directly train for the jobs of the future. But at the same time, you know, how do we, you know, help, what, what do we do? What does the future look like? And I think for me, that's kind of where my question comes in. So we've talked about, and we all can agree, 
2020 was a year that was just crazy. You know, we know COVID kind of brought some of it, but you know, if we look at just everything that happened in 2020, it was just a year we can look back and just be like, man, we survived. (laughs) Um, But as we go forward, you know, it's one of those, I'd love to see, what do you guys feel um, are some of the greatest challenges as we, that face the industry as 2021 kicks off, but also, you know, where are some of the greatest opportunities um, for 2021? So, you know, I, I guess, we'll, you know, Kim, let's just start with you. Cause I'd love to hear from your perspective, what you think those may yeah, be. Yeah. I mean, it's a great question because 2020 was like a year you couldn't have predicted. Um, you know, my crystal ball on 2020, I threw it out the door, um, because I, I couldn't have mapped out what a, yeah. what a hundred year, uh, pandemic would look like and how it impact, uh, our daily lives, but also our industry. And, you know, I was just thinking back while you were raising this question to, you know, the calls I was getting from industry in March and April. You know, the industry that remains here in the United States is very competitive. They make a variety of different kinds of products. And all of a sudden, literally overnight, orders were canceled. Operations were shut down. You know, social distancing was happening. And some of our free trade agreement partners, which are very important in our Western Hemisphere, also were experiencing this sort of lockdown and and an uncertain pathway forward about would they stay operational? And in fact, uh, is there any consumers here in the United States that were going to buy things like (laughs) t-shirts and pants? So the level of uncertainty, I've never experienced that in all of my career. And, um, you know, but now as we're several months uh, into this pandemic and there's a light at the end of the vaccine tunnel, you know, consumers are spending more, people are buying vehicles and other products that use textile components. And, you know, we're starting to see uh, significant growth in our industry. And we're starting to see um, retail community look at other places outside of Asia to source product, including our Western Hemisphere trade partners. So that's a key opportunity that exists. Um, because of uh, supply chains being so, such in the news, but also just sort of like, hey, business is coming back. So how do we strengthen some of our key partnerships, not just in the Western Hemisphere, but even within the United States? And so, um, you know, I'm feeling very hopeful uh, going into 2021 about uh, where this industry is and, you know, really look forward to the year ahead. No, and I think, and that's great. I I couldn't agree more um, with you on that. So, Julia, I'd love to hear um, your thoughts on, you know, some of those challenges, but also opportunities as we kick off, um, you know, as we go into 2021. Yeah, thanks. I mean, and and I I hate to look back to a year ago because, you know, let's be honest, (laughs) I mean, how bad it was. And, you know, we have, you know, a number of brands and retailers who, who are gone. Um, who didn't survive um, last year and others who have restructured and have, you know, reduced jobs and reduced their size. But I want to be a little bit more upbeat. And one of our member companies talked with me about what they call the learnings of COVID and that while it's not something we would have volunteered for, that, that actually the experience of this past year for many companies helped them to see where they could streamline their supply chain, where they could be more sustainable and have obviously no business trips, um, but also you know fewer packages of samples going back and forth and really look at how to, how to do business smarter 
um, than the way that we had been. And, and changes that might have taken years um, you know, happened very quickly on the last year. So I think it, in that sense, the industry that remains, the brands and retailers are, many of them are stronger uh, and more efficient than they were before. Uh, so I think that that's a, that, so we can look at that as an unintended positive consequence. I, I also want to, you know, build on what Kim said about, you know, for sure companies are, are taking a fresh look at their sourcing. Um, we haven't really seen yet as much business return to Western Hemisphere as we would have expected. And, and that's something that I, I know personally uh, we want to encourage uh, brands and retailers to take a fresh look at Western Hemisphere sourcing, you know, closer to home, faster turn for speed to market, um, but also making use of the free trade agreements that, you know, have been negotiated and are in place as a way to move forward with a more efficient supply chain. Uh, and that's great points, um, you know, Julia, and I think that not just in retail and brands, you know, what you've learned, I can tell you experience, you know, at BASF, one thing we've constantly learned that, hey, you know what, maybe there is a new way of doing business. And in the past, how it was changed seemed to take a really long time and a lot of study and a lot of look into it's been, well, you know what, maybe we can make those changes a lot quicker and, you know, streamline policies. So I, I think that is definitely a learning that's spread across multiple industries. Um, and so, Augie, anything that you, you know, would like to add as far as opportunities um, going into the new year? Uh, sure. And and uh, Julie will be shocked when I say that I actually agree with her. Uh -oh. uh, that's a once in a 40 year event, maybe not once in a hundred. Mark this day on the calendar. Uh, yeah, don't worry. <laughs> um, two things. Uh, one is we look back, uh, we learned a, a hard lesson, and, and Kim alluded to this, and I think it exposes uh, a lack of strategic thinking on the part, again, of policymakers over the last 40 years. Uh, but when the emergency uh, and crisis heightened, and the demand for uh, uh, PPE uh, was strained. We saw what uh, what human nature normally does. Uh, countries uh, started to restrict the export of those products. They started to look inward, in in an effort to hoard product and to to take care of their interests first. And the United States, uh, unfortunately, was sitting here uh, without a, a fully integrated PPE industry, almost totally dependent on offshore sources for that product uh, and exposing our frontline workers in a devastating fashion. Uh, the first point I would say is that we as a government and as an industry need to do some true strategic planning about what's important, what's essential, what's valuable to our national security. And we need to come up with a policy to make sure that those products are made closer to home um, in, in good times and in bad. The second, on the commercial side of this, um, I, I totally agree that it is it's time to look at this region and this hemisphere in a uh, more embracing fashion. 
Um, I think it's a wonderful opportunity uh, to bring back uh, programs that went to Asia uh, over these past four decades. And I think, you know, all parties uh, have a, uh, a role to play and can get better in, in regard to this. For example, I think we uh, on the manufacturing end uh, need to be better at, at uh, product development and full product development uh, approaches that allow uh, brands and retailers to, to see the full uh, you know, spectrum of our capabilities and to give them a choice, so to speak, uh, not to, to have to go to Asia to see uh, things that they had grown accustomed to uh, during this period, that it can be done here. Uh, and then that's going to have to involve a close partnership with this hemisphere um, because the United States is excellent at producing fiber yarn fabric and dyeing and finishing that family. Um, the real bottleneck is at cut and sew. And if we are going to have a, a re-energized uh, full production chain for this industry in this hemisphere, in most cases, it's going to involve uh, U.S. textile production partnering uh, with hemispheric uh, apparel producers. Um, but again, the key is people are now looking to bring stuff back. Let's encourage them to do so by, uh, by demonstrating what our true capabilities are. Yeah. And, and you know, Augie, you bring up a great, um, you know, point there that we do have a lot of capabilities, um, you know, in the Western hemisphere and, you know, domestically specifically. And I think that, you know, in light of 2020 and even more, um, you know, recent news about concerns with, you know, with China and some of the stuff that's happening in Xinjiang. And, um, you know, it seems like global cotton markets, everything's just kind of in a flux right now, whether it's textile, whether it's apparel, uh, you know, retail on the fashion side of it for Joya or, you know, even just with our U.S. cotton farmers of, hey, okay, hey, wh what are prices going to do? What does that mean? What are my acres going to do? What's going to happen? Everything's just a little, you know, crazy and what's happening right now. And, you know, Bob and I talked some about this and, you know, we were talking about, you know, and, you know, Bob, I know you had a couple of questions around it of, Hey, you know, what does that mean? And what is that going to mean for trade and trade initiatives and trade organizations um, moving forward? So Bob, I wasn't sure on some of your, you know, you had a couple of questions around that piece of it. Yeah. Just basically, or, you know, Will the multilateral system be able to address issues like Xinjiang effectively, for example, and also address changes that are just naturally happening in global trade because of COVID, what COVID has accelerated? It's a difficult Kim, question, Bob, because, you know, <laughs> honestly, it's um, the global dominance of Xinjiang in cotton production cannot be discounted. I mean, um, they're a significant supplier of cotton and other cotton. They make several cotton products as well as other products that have been tied to forced labor. This is a very serious issue. And enforcement associated with this is very critical. And understanding the supply chain and verifying the supply chain is important. And so, 
you know, um, at the end of the Trump administration, it was announced that they would have a ban on cotton and cotton products, you know, that that is tied to using forced labor and um, also with tomatoes and other items. And we welcome that call. But I think what's really critical to all of this is, um, you know, in, is enforcement efforts associated and what is being expected from the importing community around verification and how best to verify, um, you know, where products are made and with, with what technology. And so will this force, will be this, will this be a quintessential action forcing event that will recalibrate trade for decades to come? It could be. Or we could be on this podcast a year from now uh, being underwhelmed uh, and that it, we didn't see as substantial of a shift as we thought there would be given the ties to, to forced labor. And I think, you know, everyone uh, on this podcast is horrified by the reports as well as American people by the daily reports coming out of the area. Um, but what we do moving forward is really critical and what we do with our international trade partners and the international global community is also very important in terms of how we respond. So, Julie, what's your take? You know, let me go back to to uh, the initial question, and I do think that you know it's international organizations as well as a, a whole of U.S. government effort, uh, similar to what the Biden administration executive order calls for on supply chains, is what's really necessary here to to deal with issues like forced labor. Um, Kim is right; there is there is no one who accepts forced labor. Um, for brands and retailers, there's zero tolerance for forced labor. Um, the issue is how do you deal with um, the situation in the XUAR region and the Uyghur workers in China? And then how do you guarantee that in your organization, even if you're not doing any business in that region, that you have none of that product in your supply chain? And I think you know what we've seen is really a, a very strong commitment I mean, brands and retailers very quickly, you know, confirmed that their code of conduct says we will not source from any company that uses forced labor. And, you know, but the next step is, all right, for that enforcement, how can we use that? And, and I think more importantly than the enforcement, because the enforcement is, you know, taking an action after it happened, is how do we mobilize and internationally, but also domestically to eliminate forced labor. Uh, you know, I have some ideas about this. I'm actually appearing at a hearing later this week to kind of talk about this because I think there's a lot of good things that uh, brands and retailers have been doing, um, but we need to address the root, the root cause and eliminate forced labor in whatever forms it exists. And, and I think we all agree with that. Indeed. Sure. Uh, yourself it's a two-part question let me take uh, maybe the second part first uh, will international organizations like the WTO be effective in dealing with this uh, my view of, of that aspect of this question is uh, I don't hold out much hope uh, China has tremendous influence within the WTO um, many of the uh, developing countries in Asia that are dependent on a strong relationship with China 
are extremely active within the WTO. I do think uh, Europe and the United States together could force uh, uh, some uh, change on China's part uh, by coming uh, together in a bilateral coalition on this, because those are the two markets, right, that that China is is trying to access with with the better part of these goods that are being produced in in the Xinjiang region. Um, the other point, however, that I want to make is that I'm very troubled by how China is responding to this. Um, there's no question as to what's going on in Western China. Uh, numerous intelligence agencies outside of the United States, independent uh, journalists and reporters have all confirmed that it's everything from forced labor to genocide. And instead of China saying that uh, they are ready and willing to address this issue, it's almost as if they've doubled down and essentially are daring the world to take them on in, in regard to what they view as an internal matter. And we saw a precursor to this a year ago with Hong Kong uh, and how the Chinese uh, handled that situation. And this is the reality of, of China in the 21st century. They're sitting on top of the largest capital reserves in the world. Uh, they are a military, economic, and at least in the Pacific, a political superpower. Uh, and they are essentially saying, look, we're not going to bend at least easily to Western ideals and Western pressure. And so I think we're at an inflection point in terms of industries like ours that have, uh, have been involved uh, significantly and been impacted significantly by China as to how do you deal with this? Because they show uh, very little signs of, of remorse and very little sign of changing their, their activity. If that's the case, then you almost have to disentangle yourself from China uh, and bring this production closer to home where you aren't running the risk of being entangled uh, in a Chinese production chain that is very difficult to verify in terms of whether or not forced labor or cotton produced under forced labor uh, is somehow integrated in that. So. Uh, it's a it's an interesting time to see how China is reacting, and I think it's an inflection point for the industry as a whole. Uh, that um, depending on China to work cooperatively to solve this problem, at least right now, that, that doesn't appear to be the case. Yeah, and and I think you know I think we've got time for one more question because um, I know we're about out of time and I could keep talking because I have a lot of questions for all three of you. So don't worry, all three of you will be invited back. Um, and I think we might should do a quarterly update so all of our listeners can know what's happening in all the what's happening in D.C. But um, 
You know, I think for the final question, and I think for me, because we do have from the textile side of the business and we have from the fashion and, you know, just government policy, all of it. But I think at the end of the day, you know, whether the industry changes or not, whether, you know, what happens or whether there's enforcement from trade organizations or how, you know, other hemispheres and other places respond. My question, you know, really comes out, you know, how important are sustainability and transparency and traceability going to be going forward? Um, you know, how important do you think, you know, I recently at the World Agritech Summit held a roundtable where we talked about this and how in a world that is, you know, changing so quickly, whether it's digital or whatever it is, how do we make, you know, a sea to fashion where everyone at the table from the farmer all the way through from to the textile to that end brand and the consumer, how, how do we make it work and how do we do that? Um, you know, do you think that those initiatives, are, are we at the industry and the textile piece where we're like the food movement, you know, farm to table and how it's so important to know what that is? Um, are, are we there as an industry now on the textile and apparel piece of it? And Joya, I'd love to start with you to get your take on it. Thanks so much. And I mean, thanks also for, for this question, because I do think that the, this is uh, a very important issue and something that we are seeing that even through, you know, the past year and the difficulties with COVID and, you know, companies' concerns about whether they were going to be able to survive or not, um, we didn't see any diminution in the support for sustainability and for more transparency in supply chains. I, I think kind of the opposite. Um, you know, I also think that the more that we can find initiatives, what you call seed to fashion, I love that. Um, I want to use that phrase now. Uh, but you know, I can bring everybody. <laughs> I'll, I'll accept a small royalty fee. Or we had our, our last guest um, was one of our tra- breeders and integrators, and she said, "From the jeans and the cotton to the jeans that go on your." legs. And I was like, you know, that's, that's pretty good, good too. So, I like, know, all right. I, I like, everything is open. <laughs> I like, I like that one too. I mean, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's so important. Um, you know, that we're not just working in a silo, right. Of whether it's, you know, from the cotton side or the textile side or the apparel side, or, or even on branding that we can work together. Um, because there are so, there are many different initiatives that are out there, a lot of companies that are supporting them, but, you know, can we coalesce behind some that are really going to make a difference? Um, Whether we're talking about climate change, we're obviously talking about the, you know, social compliance and and labor conditions, um, you know, traceability, tracking, uh, all of those are commitments that companies are looking at, you know, and there's so many digital options as well for this. Um, so I, I think this is really only going to be accelerating as a issue for the industry and, you know, a pretty exciting one for, for us to all get behind. No, and that's exciting to hear because I think you're exactly right. And I think that's something that um, we hope that from the grower standpoint and the raw material input of cotton that we can, um, you know, help in that acceleration within the industry. Um, so Kim, your thoughts? No, I, um, I, I think it's a great question. And I really like Julie's answer. I, you know, I, we live in a society now that we can get information on ev- all sorts of different things. So I think that's going to apply to our industry uh, as it moves forward. I know from speaking to industry, um, they're starting to get questions from some of their customers, which is great about where inputs are made um, and where that's coming from. People want to know and they want to verify some of their 
key suppliers? And that's a great question to ask, and our industry is eager to provide that answer. And so I think there's a huge opportunity here. I also think there's a huge opportunity on sustainability. Um, Many companies are making pledges uh, to support carbon emission reduction and and to foster a more sustainable uh, production of um, items that are biodegradable, use less water, and less energy intensive, et cetera. And we should think about the global supply chain um, associated with that. You know, what are the carbon emissions, embedded carbon emissions in the production of apparel in East Asia? Um, and what is it comparative to making a product here in the United States or our Western hemisphere? you know, without having the same freight uh, associated as Mm -hmm. well as some of the energy sources. These are all very important issues. And I think they're high in many people's minds. And I think it's a real opportunity to bolster um, the supply chain right down from the all the way front down to the fiber. Um, uh, And so I'm I think this is a huge opportunity for our industry collectively. um, And it's a huge opportunity for brands and retailers as well. Yeah, great. Well, Augie, anything you would add to what um, Julie and Kim? Yeah, sh- sure, I agree with both. I think these issues are on the ascendancy uh, as they should be. And I do believe the American consumer is finally starting to to ask deeper, more penetrating, and better questions about uh, what they're consuming. I, I will, however, uh, caveat it with the fact that um, now is not the time to uh, relax educational efforts and promotional efforts dealing with uh, issues associated with production chain accountability and sustainability. Now is the time to uh, fully energize those efforts because I think we we do have the consumer's attention, uh, but we have to follow that up with a deeper understanding of what actually the hidden cost is of, uh, say, the old paradigm, the old model. Uh, and that's what we're, we're fighting against. Uh, we're fighting against the basic human instinct of, I just want something at the lowest cost. Okay. Yeah, and I think you're exactly right, Augie, um, on that piece of it. And you know, um, and so for all our listeners, I hate to cut this short because I could continue asking questions, but I think we are about out of time. Um, so we do thank you all so much for joining us today. And I'd like to thank Julia and Kim and Augie, all three of you for your time. And Bob, thank you for great discussion and questions. Um, and so if you guys could, um, I know our listeners a lot of times like to reach out, have questions, like to find more about, you know, different organizations. So, um, you know, should our listeners have any questions and would like to reach our organizations or topics that we covered today, what would be the best way? So, um, Julia, let's start with you. Okay. So probably the, the, the fastest way is send an email to info at usfashionindustry.com and then we will make sure that we get back to you to answer your questions and thanks for thanks for a chance to join you too yes no thank you um and kim as well um for you and your organization yeah um i would suggest if people want to reach out uh to find us on the internet uh at ncto.org and there's a contact page and send a note through our page and we will get back to you 
All right, great. And then Augie, I know you are in retirement and sometimes in retirement we like to hide, but just in case, um, if any of our listeners have any questions for you from any of your expert level, um, how they might can reach or contact you. Sure. It's actually semi-retirement, so uh, (laughs) I'm not opposed to interacting. Um, Augie, A-U-G-G-I-E-S-R-G at gmail.com. Uh, is the uh, email address for my my consulting business and would perfect pleased to help. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, yeah, and thank you, Augie and Kim and, and Julie. And I'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for joining us and hope you enjoyed our show. So, did you have any questions about the E3 Sustainable Cotton Program? Please email me at e3cotton at basf.com. Also, please make sure you follow us on our social media channels at E3 Sustainable Cotton. Um, you know, and for our listeners, just so you know, we have some exciting announcements coming out this week on those social media channels um, to announce our two first two partners and collaborators for our newly announced um, E3 Sustainable Cotton Grower Fund. So make sure you tune in and um, make sure you support those collaborators for that. So um, thanks so much, everyone, and see you next time.